And then our sermon text comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We'll read verses 35 through 47. And you can find this on page 580. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This is the word of God. John's a great book because it has tons to teach us. It teaches us about who Jesus is, what he did, the things he taught. But I think of all the places we've gotten to, this may be the most important one we've, we've, we've been to yet. Because this is a passage that teaches us an essential truth of Christianity. It, it teaches us something that is uh, something you have to understand to grasp the Christian life. This is a passage that, for me, it's what makes the gospel not simply important news that people need to hear, but really good news. Good news that's worth sharing. Good news that's worth basing your life upon. Because here we are in this passage, John chapter 6. You can open your Bibles if, if you've got one. Um, this is a passage where Jesus teaches us about the love of God. He shows us about the character of God's love. And, and specifically, in just a few short verses, he shows us what that God, what that love is like. So what we're going to see here, we're going to see that God's love is, first of all, free. God's love is, secondly, secure. And God's love is, finally, powerful. We see that his love is free, that his love is secure, and that his love is powerful. So let's just jump right into it. Let's talk about what this stuff means. The freedom of God's love. Does anybody remember where we are? Do you know where we are in this story? We, we're doing some weird stuff. We're actually jumping back to the middle of last week's passage. Jesus is surrounded by these people who had been following him from the moment he was feeding the 5,000. And they followed him, and, and, and Jesus confronts them. He tells them that the thing they had wanted, the reason they're following him, was not because of what he's teaching, but they were just following because they wanted more bread. And he says, you, what you really need is the bread of life. And so here we are. This is his speech about being the bread of life. It's right in the middle there. He says, I am the bread of life. Verse 35, I am. 
I'm the bread of life. It's not some spiritual bread that I'm talking about, or not some physical bread I'm talking about, but I'm talking about spiritual stuff. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And here's his point today. Verse 36. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. That's where we're going in this passage. Jesus is talking about why these people see him and they don't believe. Why there are people who uh, are aware of this ministry and, and still aren't following him. Why they can see and not believe. And the answer is summed up at the, near the end of our passage in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me. That's what he says. The reason you don't believe is because no one can come to me unless the Father himself draws, draws them. Okay, so the first thing this is telling us is that the primary reason, the main reason we don't believe is not an intellectual problem, but our primary reason for unbelief is a spiritual problem. It's not an intellectual problem, but it's a spiritual problem. Now, don't misunderstand that, okay? I, I'm not trying to say that, that faith has nothing to do with reason. I'm not trying to tell you that your faith doesn't involve intellect in any way. There are lots of intellectual objections to Christianity. There, there are some fair reasons why people wrestle with the claims of Jesus. Um, and if that's you, if you're in that spot where you have some, some strong intellectual objections, I want to encourage you that, that you can... You can bring those to Scripture. Jesus has answers to these objections. There are good questions that, that you should find the answer to if you're thinking about faith. Like, how can Jesus claim he's the only way to God? That's something you should figure out the answer to. Why is there evil in the world? You know, these are questions that people have, and, and I think Scripture can find answers to them. But Jesus' point here, uh, he's not trying to tell us that faith exists Apart from our knowledge, the two things go hand in hand. But what he wants to say is that our objection to him is deeper than just anything a logical argument can fix. Our objections to him are, are deeper than simply our intellect. If logic were the only thing required for faith, then all you'd need to do is give somebody a good book, right? All you need to do is hand them the reason for God, or uh, more than a carpenter, or one of those types of books, and, and that'd be it. Everybody would become Christians if logic was all it took. But Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. What he's saying is, it's not that we can't understand the message. It's not that we can't follow the things Jesus says. It's that we can't want Jesus. Apart from God, we can't want God. My daughter, Ruby, she's six now. Most of you know her. And she has been pretty persistent over the years to just hate all things, all foods with any kind of sauce on them. So like anything that has something remotely liquid looking about it, she will not eat. And it's, it's a hard and fast rule. I mean, it's, it's spaghetti. If you say, honey, it's going to be a lot better with sauce. Spaghetti sauce is good stuff. It makes it taste better. She doesn't care. 
if I put a, a, a plain bowl of noodles in front of her and a delicious bowl of spaghetti with Parmesan cheese that looks amazing, a hundred times out of a hundred, she's going to choose the plain noodles. It's not that she couldn't physically eat the other kind. It's not that she couldn't physically put it in her mouth and chew it and swallow it. It's just that she can't want it. For whatever reason, she does not want things with sauce. The theological term for this, <laughs> the theological idea behind this is, is something called total depravity. <laughs> what it's saying is, we can't want God. Our passage from Psalm said it, Romans repeats it. There is no one who seeks God. Not even one. There's no one who seeks him. A hundred times out of a hundred, when given the options, we are going to choose not God. No one can come to me. That's what Jesus says. But there's good news in that verse too, right? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He puts it this way earlier in the passage. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The good news for us is that God is in the business of drawing people to himself. We talked about that a few weeks ago when we read John 3.16. God's love, he's not withholding. <laughs> says that God loved the world so much that he sent his son, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. This passage tells us that God will accomplish his goal. All the people will be saved, every single one of them. Jesus is going to save them. God's going to save his people in spite of our stubbornness, in spite of our unwillingness to choose him. But think about this. If God is the one doing all the work, if his love is really free from any dependence upon us, that means he's not looking for some kind of special trait in the people who might follow him. right? He's not surveying this crowd and looking out to find the person who has the most potential, who might be able to do the most good for his kingdom. He's not looking for, for the person who has that one special thing, and then he's going to go save that person. And here's why that's important. If it's true, if it's true that we are hopelessly lost, that we cannot possibly do anything to, to choose God, and we can't do anything to earn God's affection, if there's nothing especially attractive in us to God, if we've got nothing to offer, then that means, first of all, there's, there's no difference between me and my non-Christian neighbor, except for one thing. The movement of God's free grace. That's the only distinction. That means that we, as Christians, aren't allowed to think of ourselves as better. We're not allowed to think of ourselves as smarter, as, as wiser in some way. We're not the people who pulled ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps. We're not the ones who had the good common sense to respond to the invitation. It means we were saved by grace. Alone. That's all. It also means when we are, are thinking about other people, 
coming to faith. We shouldn't look at ourselves like, uh, I don't know, like conversion machines or something, right? It's not our job to go out and, and persuade each and every person to follow Jesus. I mean, if we really believe this, what we, what we should, should spend most of our energy doing is praying. Praying that God would prepare people's hearts. And, and yeah, sharing, of course. But we'd spend a lot of time praying that God would do the work. Well, think about it this way. Uh, we're at the, the beginning of, of Black History Month right now. And it's a, a time where we, as a, a nation, kind of reflect on the injustices of the past, the injustices of the present, the great legacy of uh, black people, African-American people in our community. And I'm always struck around this time of year by that fact that you hear repeated over and over and over again that, that this hour <laughs> is still the most segregated hour, that God's church still seems to be the most segregated place on earth. And yet... Because of this truth, because God's grace transcends our desires, it transcends our worthiness, it transcends our abilities, we see a church around this world that is represented by every race, by every culture, by every socioeconomic class, because God's grace transcends our racism. God's grace exists outside of us. God draws his grace isn't dependent upon us. It's not dependent upon our social networks and the friends that we have. He has no biases and no preferences. All are equally powerless to be saved. And he saves them. All humanity is equally lost, equally depraved, equally unable to choose him. But God's love is free. It's free to move as he pleases, and he will draw all people without exception. And because God's love is free like this, God's love is also secure. That's the second thing I want to talk about today. Because God's love is free to do as it pleases, God's love is also secure. What do I mean? Well, let's look at this verse again. The end of verse 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For me, it's verses like this, verses like these verses that have probably brought me more freedom in my faith, in my Christian life, than any other kind of verse. It's, it's this topic that has really helped me to understand what Christianity is all about. And if you're not a Christian here in this room, if you're kind of uh, exploring Christianity, pay attention here. Because this is the thing that sets Christianity apart. This is what sets the Christian faith apart from every other religion, every other worldview. It tells us here that a Christian's salvation is secure. Every person who looks to Jesus, who repents of their sin, everyone who trusts in him for salvation can be assured that they have it. If we look to Jesus, we can be sure that we have salvation. This is a logical conclusion of what I was just talking about. It's a logical conclusion of God's love being free. Think about it. If you were totally lost, if indeed you were saved only by God's free and conditionless choice, 
If you didn't do anything to earn your salvation, well, how are you going to do anything to lose it? What, what is it that you could possibly do to have him reject you then? Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then he adds, as long as you do all these things. No, wait, he doesn't do that, right? He doesn't say, as long as you do all these things. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And what does never mean? It means never. It means never. The gospel is good news that Christ has paid for our sins. Past. Our past sins, our, our present sins, and our future sins. It's all been paid for once and for all on the cross. The thing he says is, it is finished. And if it's finished, if our sins are paid for, then you're free. You're really free. What is freedom? Think about it. I mean, suppose, suppose you're in prison, you know, laying on your bunk, sleeping one night, and then you see the, the rope kind of fly through the, the bars on your window. And all of a sudden you hear this loud engine noise, and the next thing you know, the, the, the wall is ripped down, and there's me in a pickup truck, <laughs> right? Hey, buddy, you're free. Come on. But then I say, you're free, but from now on, you have to do everything I say. <laughs> and if you slip up once, I'm putting you right back in. I'm turning you back into the authorities. Let me ask, are you free? No, right? You're just in a different kind of prison now. <laughs> You're in my prison. You're in the prison of my laws. But the gospel message is that Christ has set us free. There are so many Christians, probably in this room, I know in this room, who say they believe that Christ has saved them, and yet we live in this life of guilt and, and fear and shame and condemnation. We live under this yoke of the law, and we fear that, that we're going to do something that's going to get us kicked out. How many of us know, you know, if, if, if you... Are you worried if you, if you walk across the street and get hit by a bus today that your, your eternity is uncertain? Well, the gospel is not only that our sins are forgiven, the gospel is that we have been united with Christ. That we and Jesus have been united together. That we can rest we can rest assured that it's finished, that our salvation isn't dependent upon our works. It's dependent upon His. Sinclair Ferguson, he's a, a famous pastor, a great theologian, um, and he says that one of the reasons why so many Christians are a wreck today is that we don't believe we have been justified by grace. We don't believe that we have been declared innocent before God by grace alone. We don't realize, as he puts it, that we are counted as righteous before the Father as Christ himself. That, that according to God's judgment, there's no difference between us and Jesus. In other words, Christ is our righteousness. The only righteousness, as a matter of fact, the only thing that we can claim before God is Christ's record. Right? It's not our ticky-tack record of the good things we've done this week. 
right? It's not the, the record of the good things that we've done or how we've lived or how we've behaved or what we've thought. The only thing we can cling to is Christ's record. That's it. In Christ, we've been set free. Really free. And that means we're free. It means we're free to go to the right or to go to the left. We're free to be perfectly obedient and do everything he's asked, or we're free to fall flat on our face in sin. And this is why the gospel is good news. Because it's not about you. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. It's a gift that's given. So that nobody can boast. Nobody can boast that they have earned it, and nobody can fear that they've lost it. Do you see the implications of that for you today? Do you see why that matters to you today? Because that means for you today, sitting in this room in terrible sin, whoever you are. Maybe there's somebody here that, that is, is neck deep in sexual immorality and they don't want to tell anybody about it. Maybe there's somebody here who's caught up in the throes of addiction. Maybe there's somebody who is just gripped by self-righteousness and judgment of others. Well, if you have looked to Christ as your Savior, then you have not outsinned His grace. You are not beyond forgiveness. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That security is, is not conditional. It's real. It belongs to everyone who comes to Him. God's love is free. It's free from any dependence upon us, and God's love is secure because it's free. But the final thing we need to see here is that God's love is powerful. I want to ask you a question at this point in our sermon. Christians in this room, I want to direct this to you. How are you feeling about all these things? What's going on in your mind? Is there anybody here who's thinking, Pastor, you can't tell people this? You can't tell people that they can do whatever they want. If you tell people it doesn't matter, they're going to live like animals. They're going to be lost into to lawlessness. Well, the truth is, the opposite is usually the case. Because if God's love is freely given, if God's love is secure, then God's love has the power to change you. Conditional love can change our behavior. Conditional love can make our actions on the outside look different, but it's only unconditional love. This unconditional love of God that actually can change our hearts. Uh, have you guys seen that, the recent Pixar movie, uh, Inside Out? Have you seen that one? Where it's about kind of the girl's emotions as she's going through this. It's a young girl, and it's like you see the inside of her head, the emotions she's experiencing as she goes through this big life transition. But a few of the scenes during the movie that take place in, in the real world, not inside of her head, uh, kind of give you an idea of what's going on with her. And in that movie, there's this little girl. She's moved across the country, moved from, I think, Minnesota to California or something like that. She's very young, and she's trying to process this change. It's a lot of stress on her family. And there's a scene where she's talking to her mother, and her mother says something to her like, you know, I, I'm just... I love you. You're always in such a good mood. You're always so happy. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And what 
how the daughter receives that, it's not really what the mom was saying, but what the daughter receives is, I have to keep being happy. And if I'm not happy, then everything's going to fall apart. For, for my mother to love me, I need to be happy. And so at first, she, she's trying to fake it. She's trying to act like everything's okay. But eventually, when she starts to feel sad, she gets filled by fear and guilt and shame. And eventually, the, the command, you need to be happy, becomes this noose around her neck, and she ends up running away. Conditional love can change our actions on the outside, but it really can't change our hearts. Think about it this way. Imagine your father is a billionaire, and, and like a benevolent billionaire, not like Donald Trump, like a really nice, a good guy. Um, <laughs> actually, for this first one, it could be Donald Trump, it doesn't matter. Imagine this guy, your, your father's a billionaire, and, and, and he says to me, he says to you, as long as you follow my rules, when I pass away, all of this is going to be yours. I'm a billionaire. This is going to be your inheritance. You just need to do what I say. But I'll tell you what, if you don't do what I say, then I'm going to use every single penny that I have to make your life miserable after I die. So here's the list of all the things you need to do. Here's a list of daily chores and responsibilities. You better do them. Would you do it? Yeah, probably, right? You would probably do those things so you could get your inheritance and not be thrown into this, this terrible reality. But what's going to be motivating your, your life? Fear, right? Anxiety. This terror of what might happen to you. And on the inside, what's going to happen to your heart? While on the outside you're obeying the Father's commands, on the inside you're becoming bitter and, and resentful. Or self-righteous. But imagine this other scenario where you have a father who says, I'm a billionaire, and all the things I have are already yours because you're my child. Nothing's going to change that. In my eyes, you're perfect. In my eyes, when I think about you, I start to sing. But you know, child, I have this list of things that if you do them, it's going to make your life more fulfilling. It's going to fill your life with joy and peace. This is the stuff that I really want for you. Now, would you do that? Would you follow those instructions? Yeah, you would, right? But, but what would motivate you? Not fear, not anxiety, but love. And it won't be just your actions that start to change from that list, but it's going to be your heart. It's going to be your life. That's a picture of how the gospel works. God says to you, you were a sinner. You were desperately lost, and you had no hope to save yourself. A hundred times out of a hundred, you would not choose me because you were spiritually dead. But I loved you so much that I gave you all that I had. I gave you my son to come and suffer and die as your substitute. And now I've sent my spirit to put life in your dead body. The gospel says, in the gospel God says to us, all that's mine is yours. You're mine. 
You're mine because of my love and because of my grace alone. So you don't need to fear. You don't need to worry that you're going to do something that's going to kick you out because I am going to finish what I started. He says, you'll be with me and I will not lose you. Now, maybe if you were thinking, if you tell people they'll free, they're free, they'll, they'll just do whatever they want. But that's just not how it works. In parenting, that's not how it works, right? <laughs> Showing your kids grace versus hammering down on them. When the Spirit makes your heart alive, when you're set free, you can't live like you used to. When the Spirit makes you alive, you can't keep doing the things you used to do. When you realize what Jesus has done for you, when you realize the thing Jesus has done is nothing short of, of putting life in a dead person, when you realize how helpless you were, then your heart towards God starts to change. You want to be near Him. You want to obey. You want to be with Him. But that's actually just the beginning. I know a lot of us here have been Christians for more than a few minutes. And here's what you find. As you live a life of faith, you will inevitably fail. You will fall. As you start to walk with Jesus, as you read the word, you're going to find out that there is more sin in you than you ever thought there was. You're going to find out that, that things you didn't even know were sin are sin. <laughs> and sometimes there's just going to be days where you fall flat on your face. But it's in that place. It's in those moments where you really get to find out the kind of Savior you have. It's in those moments of deepest failure and regret when God's grace reaches down and grabs a hold of your heart. And you hear him say, even though you're such a mess, I will never cast you out. It's in that moment when you start to want holiness. Not because you have to. Not because you need to get your act together. But because in those moments you see through your sin. When you're at rock bottom, you see the lies. And you realize that this call to obedience is not some awful rule that God has put on our life, but it is the path of life. That's the power of the love of God. It's a power that transforms us because it is given freely. It is held securely and it will never be taken away. There's a, a Puritan prayer called The Valley of Vision. They actually collected a lot of prayers into a book, and they gave the book this title. Um, and it comes from this idea, The Valley of Vision. The prayer goes like this. He says, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths, but I see you in the heights. See if you can relate to this situation. He says, Surrounded by mountains of my sin, I behold your glory. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. 
And the deeper the wells, the brighter the stars shine. Let me find your light in my darkness, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. God's love is free. God's love is secure, and its power extends even to the deepest and darkest places. Do you know that love? Have you experienced that love today? I want to invite you, if you're in that valley this morning, won't you look up? Won't you look up and see the, the cross? Won't you look up and see this table where God's grace is freely extended to you? And will you lay down your sin, repent, come to him? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the good news of the gospel. There really is good news. You tell us if we come to you, you won't cast us out. As that quote at the beginning of our service said, if we could lose our faith, we would have by now. If we could lose our salvation, we would have. But Lord, your grace is greater than our sin. And so I pray, Father, that today we would see you and that we'd be transformed by that love. Lord, I want to pray for those people who are here in this room that don't know that love, who've never known you, who've never experienced that. I pray, Father, for those who, who want it. Lord, that means you're at work. That means you're already drawing them. So I pray, God, that you would give them the faith to come, to believe. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.